What's up, rock nerds? Welcome back to another Geology Vlog podcast. My name is Neil S. Turlock, geologist, and today we have Chris Armistead, who has broken the chains that bound him from Pennsylvania, rocketed down to Houston, Texas, where he's been working as an AAPG certified petroleum geologist in and around the oil and gas industry. Welcome, Chris. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your education, and what you're up to now? Yeah, thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, so I started as a geologist pretty early on in life and got my bachelor's degree uh, from the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. Uh, I grew up over in the Appalachian Mountains, kind of started to love rocks then. My mom would always tell me I'd, I'd brought home bags of, of rocks from uh, parking lots and ditches and everything else. Uh, so she had to carry all those from the car to the house, and I was not real happy about it. Uh, and then I, I got my master's degree from Oklahoma State, um, and my first job was in Oklahoma back in 2003. Uh, I started with a small company, small operator, uh, drilling all over the state, and also uh, wells over in Illinois and Louisiana. I had a lot of water flood work um, and mostly vertical work. So it was a good good place to start. Uh, got to learn ins and outs of drilling and and how to how to operate wells, uh, how to develop fields, uh, both primary and secondary recovery. Um, and then I moved on to a uh, bigger operator, uh, worked for Lynn Energy, who was actually in Houston, uh, and then went to Stone Energy, worked in Marcellus in, uh, and the Utica over in West Virginia and Pennsylvania and Ohio, then came all the way back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, and worked once again all over Oklahoma and, and uh, Michigan Basin in the Antrim. And now I find myself in Houston, Texas. Uh, right now I'm in between jobs and uh, looking to get back into the game. I'm familiar with Lynn Energy because I'm from Michigan, and they've drilled a, a bunch of wells in and around the Michigan area, Michigan Basin. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you worked the Michigan Basin, were you with Lynn Energy then? Yeah, uh, so Lynn got into the Michigan Basin when they bought out High Mount's Antrim assets. The, uh, the Antrim shale is a shallow Devonian shale, uh, black shale, high organic content, uh, and it's it's all over the, the northern part of the basin. It's just below the glacial till, and uh, it's about 1,200 to 1,500 feet deep. Uh, so it's real shallow wells. Up there, it's a uh, biogenic gas, which means that it's yeah. gas that does is basically burped out by uh, bacteria, microbes, things like that. So you drill a shallow well, they're they're uh, low volume. I mean, they don't make a whole lot. You know, they'll peak at 125, 150 mcf a day, and then slow, steady decline, uh, and then they'll just level out and they'll just produce forever. So they, I think, they gave them back. Back then, they were given one well, I think, uh, half a B, CF, uh, EUR. So that's pretty good for a little shallow well. Doesn't cost much more. Wow. So uh, was there any exploration work that you did throughout the basin? Yeah. Uh, so while I was there at Lynn, uh, we were also uh, interested in, in what was beneath our acreage up there in the north. Uh, knew about the Niagara Reefs, uh, which were uh, major oil reservoir in the Michigan Basin. 
we were also uh, looking at the A1 carbonate a little bit. Uh, a little more recently, we were looking at that. I know some operators were looking at drilling horizontal wells in that, but I don't believe there's been a lot of success so far. Uh, the other thing that we were looking at is the uh, Utica Collingwood. Uh, that oh, yeah. is, is time equivalent to the uh, the old Utica Point Pleasant over in the uh, Appalachian Basin. And so they were trying to continue the success of what they had learned in that play and also up in Canada, uh, Utica Collingwood's up there as well in the northernmost extent of the basin. Um, and so, you know, there, there were some operators back then, this was around 2010, uh, that were just starting to come down and test the Utica Collingwood, uh, like in Canada, Chesapeake, operators like that. Didn't have a whole lot of success. Uh, it's a little gassier down there in uh, the Michigan part, but I've seen a f- couple of wells recently that I believe were drilled by Marathon or Core Energy that uh, seemed to have some oil and gas production. They were actually put on production, and, and uh, the, the initial tunes look pretty good. Speaking of Core Energy, did you get to see any of the core that you uh... – that you worked with with the, the, the rocks and the subsurface from Michigan? Yeah. Uh, you know, we were mostly studying Antrim. That's what we were drilling. So I got to see uh, whatever Antrim core was available at the time. And it's a really it's really neat rock. It's highly fractured. That's some of the best reservoirs. It's going to be the highly fractured rock. Uh, it's, it's a nice black shale, and it uh, crumbles pretty easily when you, when you get the good stuff. All the surface area for all the gas to escape. Right. So the thing that they taught me uh, in Michigan is that all the, you know, the bacteria got into the antrum uh, from the glacier melt and that the glacier melt infiltrated, you know, through all of the the glacial tillows, probably, you know, being deposited at the same time or uh, just worked itself down and through into the, the highly fractured antrum and that mm-hmm. uh, the the bacteria was carried in by uh, glacial meltwater, and that's how all of that gas is being made today is the bacteria farts from glacial melt. So, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I had heard that as well. I know that, you know, the bacteria are able to survive because it is so shallow and the water is diluted so that, you know, it keeps them alive. I, I think we were working on, um, you know, how can we enhance the microbe growth? When we were, that was one of the things. Uh, we were also drilling okay. directionally. Um, so when you drill directional, especially that shallow, it, it's not a horizontal well, it's not a vertical well, it's at an angle. So you're trying to interact with as, as much of the formation as possible with one well. So we would start a well at a 45-degree angle. Wow. And, uh, I mean, pretty much set the rat hole was 45 degrees, and we just keep drilling down. If you've got a 100-foot-thick interval, let's say, you know, you're you're going to be in it for a lot longer and, and be able to uh, tap into more of the run. It was a neat technology, a neat strategy put in place back then. So then you try to shoot the antrum with bacteria-filled water to create yeah. more gas. Right. And, and, I mean, there were some other things. You know, we tried uh, little fracks uh, with nitrogen foam or nothing huge. You, you had to open it up, and, and it was highly fractured that, that always uh it always helped yeah i mean it, it, they were trying a lot of different things back then and uh that was just a couple of them so that's pretty interesting 
So your Illinois Basin, uh, which company were you with for that? So uh, Illinois, I've worked with, uh, my first job was with Lamanco Drilling Company. They were based out of Tulsa. Um, okay. They had uh, some water floods over in Illinois in the uh, McCloskey, uh, which is St. Genevieve. Um, and then uh, they got bought out by Lynn Energy. That's how I, I went to work for Lynn. So oh, cool. Them. Um, and then I also worked the uh, New Albany up uh, for Stone in 2010. They were looking for new places to go drill some shale that, that hadn't didn't have a huge price tag like the Utica did. And so we were looking at the New Albany in southern, southeastern Illinois. So that's almost like wildcatting through a shale play. A little bit. I mean, it had been drilled through a lot um, down there, and, and they tried to put it on production over in the uh, at the tip of Kentucky and, and uh, tip of Indiana. But it just, it, you know, made some gas, really didn't do anything. Uh, so in Illinois, when you uh, butt up against the, the big fault of the of the rift there, I believe that's the real foot rift, you uh, start to see some, some oil and condensate. You start to see some liquid, and uh, oh. that's what we were looking at. At least I was looking at. <laughs> so my somewhat familiarity with the uh, Illinois Basin and all is that I thought the New Albany acts mostly as the cap rock for, like, the, the Trenton formation. Well, I think I think the New Albany is, is more of a source rock for that. Um, okay. I'd have to brush up on my strap here, but because the the New Albany is the uh, let me see, give me just one second. Let me look at this real quick. Sure. Yeah, because uh, I think you know the 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 Standard Oil days, they drilled through New Albany to the Trenton, and then produced the Trenton as it was back in, you know, 1912, a, a prolific producer of petroleum. Mostly they were all stripper walls and they, you know, routinely 20 barrels a day for 10 years and then stopped right. and produced nothing with salt water after. <laughs> yeah. So they think the, so the new Albany sits below all that St. Genevieve stuff, uh, the St. Louis, all the Mississippian. Um, okay. It's basically, I mean, it's, it's, New Albany is equivalent to the Marcellus and Woodford and the, uh, or not the Woodford, Marcellus and the, um, uh, we were talking about Michigan, Antrim. Antrim. Um, so the Devonian blanket that kind yeah. of just covered the earth for that time. Right. Deep, dark, uh, black shale. The Illinois basin's, uh, a pretty, pretty rich, Organic rich basin. Did you guys ever right. look at anything to do with uh, the coal that's there? They still mine a lot of coal out of Indiana and Illinois. Um, yeah, we we looked at the coal, but that you know the the coal beds weren't really thick enough. Uh, at least where where I was looking to you know uh, to drill a, a CBM well. Yeah. Um, now we were looking at the. Uh, the New Albany and the Maquoketa, which is uh, upper order vision. That's more, I guess you could kind of say it's time equivalent to the Utica. Um, the New Albany is an upper Devonian shale, so that's going to be more Marcellus or, or Antrim equivalent uh, time-wise. So, uh, but those were the two main shales, and, and I think those were the two main source rocks um, 
in the area. Now, a lot of these limestones were, were also, you know, self-sourced, uh, that they had their own oil and gas in place. Um, and so the, the New Albany and the Maquoketa and some of the other organic rich shales, uh, out there were, were also contributing to that and stored, uh, so that they could be produced much easier out of the conventional limestones and sands. With your experience in Oklahoma, um, you know, you, you said you worked uh, on a shelf and such, which I assume is all conventional vertical wells into uh, some sort of limestone, right? Yeah. On the shelf in Oklahoma, you're looking at mostly shallow wells, less than 5,000 feet, vertical, lots of limestones, lots of deltaic sands. And then once you get off the sides of the shelf into the Anadarko Basin to the west or the uh, Arcoan Basin to the south. Um, that's where you find your good Woodford production, so that'll be the scoop. And then to the west in the Anadarko Basin, that's your, your stack and merge where they're drilling the uh, Merrimack and the Mississippi. So what's the source for all the all the limestone reservoirs and sandstone reservoirs? What, where does the uh, petroleum come from, and do you know how it gets there? Yeah, so it's a lot of it's migrated in. If it's not self-sourced, I'm sure that contributes as well. Woodford is a big source; uh, is our main source over there uh, in, in Oklahoma. So, is there any is, uh, is faulting a big big highway for the oil to to transfer through, or is it just uh, um, overlying stratigraphy to underlying stratigraphy? Well, it depends on which part of Oklahoma you're in. Um, you know, if you're, if you're in a, a fairly low grade area, uh, that's, you know, you're just coming up off the shelf or something, a lot of it's stratigraphic. Uh, okay. you know, it's wherever a sand developed or it's where porosity developed in your limestone or fractures or, or wherever dolomization occurred. Um, oh, right. That, that's a big thing. You know, faults sometimes, you know, can migrate. Uh, uh, a big factor over there is the Nemaha uplift. Um, and that goes all the way from Texas up to through Kansas. You know, that, that was a major structural feature that uplifted this big ridge and caused a lot of faulting and fracturing, you know, helped to form, uh, the basins and the, the production that we have now, the reservoirs that we have now. You have a host and very wide range of experience through you know, a, a number of basins, which led you through to, uh, you know, your, your AAPG certification, building on, you know, everything you just shared with us. How did your working experience lead you to developing, you know, the, the professional working knowledge that you have today that led to your AAPG certification? So I've, I've been in the industry for just over 16 years now, and I've worked and a lot of different roles uh, from operations to development, exploitation, to exploration. Uh, I've also been a consultant. And I've, I've been out on rigs. I've been in the office. Um, and, I've, and I've also worked, uh, you know, the sales side of things, the, the mergers and acquisitions side. Being with several different companies in several different parts of the country, looking at all these basins, you know, has really given me a different perspective on uh, what a reservoir is and how it should be drilled and produced uh, and completed. Building on everything that you shared with us about your experience drilling Illinois Basin, scoop stack play, you know, working through uh, the platform in Oklahoma, 
um, you know, the drilling in Michigan. As as a geologist, you've seen lifetimes worth of, of rock throughout uh, the United States. And, you know, through your experience, you've been certified as a petroleum geologist with AAPG. Could you share with us how your experience in uh, your your working knowledge of geology got you to the point of, of being an AAPG certified petroleum geologist? I had the great opportunity to work with several companies across the U.S. and and looked at uh, a majority of the basins across the U.S. and I drilled a lot of them or, or mapped a lot of them. I've worked in multiple roles of, as operations, uh, development, exploration. I've done M&A work. I've even been a consultant when I was uh, laid off the first time in 2016. And uh, so all of that, you know, is, it kind of came together with the with the uh, certification. You know, it's it's important to me to not just be an expert of one area, but I, I want to see a lot of different things. I always have. Uh, I've always been told I have a short attention span, and maybe that's why. But, uh, you know, some people will drill or work at one basin or one formation all their lives. Um, I didn't. I knew from the very start I didn't want to do that. You know, being able to see other things, learn from my experiences in other reservoirs and basins with how different companies do different things or do things differently. You know, that all contributed to me qualifying for the certification. So did you have to work with a geologist to do that? Or was it a series of tests or some sort of, you know, publishing or something? It's mainly based on uh, years of experience, um, what you've done, you know, uh, not necessarily who you've worked for, but if you've been in the industry. Uh, you need to be in the industry for a certain amount of years. Um, you also have to have references within the APG, and, also, and if they're in the APG, they're typically in the oil and gas industry, so that was another part of it. Personally, you know, I put a lot of weight into uh, the private organizations and certifications through that because you're getting uh, a reference from someone and someone's putting their reputation on the line you know, for Chris Armistead to be an APG petroleum geologist, you know, it's also their word, not just yours. You know, having someone to go to bat for you to say, this guy knows some pile about rocks and he can get some oil out of the ground. I think that means a lot more than, you know, a lot of other ways that people qualify themselves as professional geologists. You know, it's an honor to, to be certified, but it's also kind of a responsibility. You know, you want to make sure that you don't do anything that's going to make the organization look bad, make yourself look bad. You, you want to, yeah, yeah. You, you want to be an, a, a geologist of integrity. The whole world recently has pretty much just been focused on Texas, and Texas has mm-hmm. become uh, the talking point for everything that's energy industry. You know, Wyoming's dead, Colorado's dead, Oklahoma's dead, Ohio's dead, everything's dead. There's only one place that gets oil in America, right? It's it's right. Texas. Have you had any uh, good experience working in Texas? Have you uh, helped the company drill any wells in and around great extent that is the state of Texas? Uh, I've been to a few places in Texas. I uh, drilled or helped drill some wells, helped plant some wells uh, over in East Texas in the Cotton Valley. And then I helped drilled some shallow vertical wells a long time ago in uh, North Texas in the uh, Neva. And I've also, uh, well, I haven't drilled over in the Permian yet, but I've mapped it all a whole lot um, and done a lot of regional studies over there, worked the A&D side of things. Unfortunately, by the time the, the company I was with 
decided to look at it and, and thought they wanted to get into it, the, the price per acre was way above what they were willing to pay. So we ended up uh, selling everything that we had and uh, moving elsewhere. Yeah, acreage uh, in a Permian Basin is pretty steep. You know, you look at companies like Exxon and Chevron that spend a billion dollars on acreage, and, you know, that's, that creates a prohibitive nature of the beast for most most medium small operators to ever think about drilling. So your cotton valleys were those were those all like mm-hmm. uh, conventional prospects? Were you were you making you know oil out of reservoirs, the standard reservoir? Yeah. So the it was kind of a conventional unconventional. I guess is a good way to describe it. Uh, we were drilling okay. horizontals. We were looking at developing pads. The the cotton valley over there in uh, Eastern Texas, up in like Panola County, is leather beach barrier bar sands, and so you get a, a just a mix of sand and shale, and you get all these stacked bar sequences, and so you have one bar, and then uh, just offsetting that right above it would be another one as the as the shoreline moved out, and then as the shoreline moved back in, you can see another set of bars coming back in. You know, producers each each one of those sands can act as its own reservoir. Alternatively, it can connect with the other sand. So you had to be really careful of, of how far apart you were drilling your wells, and you had to be mindful of which sand you were in. Because you could have two wells pulling out of the same reservoir when you didn't want to have one well produce. You wanted to have one well produce one reservoir and the other well produce from the other other sand. Yeah, and, and if you're trying to, you know, you're trying to cut costs over there, so... You know, if you could drill multiple laterals out of one wellboard, um, yeah. So you you know you drill into the top sand and the middle sand and then one in the lower sand, then it's a lot more, or it could be a lot more cost effective than drilling three separate wells. Uh, sure. So we were trying some different things. Uh, to kind of wrap things up, I'm gonna apologize ahead of time for maybe throwing you under the bus a little bit. Based upon you know the decades of experience you've had, because you're coming up on. 20 years as a petroleum geologist, working through the cyclical nature of the beast, where do you see the industry heading into the next decade, you know, from this happy new year that we're in of 2020 and beyond? You know, what what do you see the the industry turning to for the, the next generation of petroleum geologists? I have seen, you know, talking to people around here, I have seen a shift in what a lot of these guys are talking about, they're, they're starting PE companies and, and uh, banks, while they're not really giving out a whole lot of startup money now, um, are starting to relook at conventional assets, uh, especially when it comes to some type of te- secondary recovery or drilling horizontals uh, in like a sandstone or a limestone or something like that. Just new technologies, new ways of completing and drilling uh, in yeah. these old conventional reservoirs. Um, and then we're looking at water floods or CO2 floods or fire floods or whatever else is out there. So they're, they're starting to get some interest in that because I think they're tired. You know, nobody wants to invest in the oil and gas industry anymore. And they're tired of hearing about how great shale is, giving all this money out, and then your decline curve drops 75, 80% within the first year. Right. Uh, and you're left with like, you know, well, I, I made, I paid back the well. Uh, now my rate of return is going to be 10, 15%. Maybe my price of oil was, you know, 50 bucks. (laughs) 
Anyway, yeah. So in summary, uh, conventions are starting to come back a little bit. I think I think they will continue to do so as as more and more operators get priced out and pushed out of, of the Permian and, and other shale plays like it. Yeah, good. I think so too. Because that's you know that makes oil. That makes real oil. Yeah, yeah, and that, and, and that's where your exploration really starts to get. That's where you really need a geologist, uh, a good geologist and a good engineer, because you're not talking about something necessarily that's spread over hundreds of miles and looks nearly the same uh, across those hundreds of miles. I mean, there's slight differences. Now you're looking for channels or you're looking for porosity and fractures and limestones or whatever you're looking for in a, in a conventional, more conventional way. Um, so that's, that would be a good boost to high rent if, if they kind of just let the majors go into those big areas and uh, everybody else kind of went elsewhere. Um, but I tell you, the, the frack ban that I don't think it's in place yet in, in Colorado, but it's getting ready to be, I think. Illinois, you can't frack. Uh, well, you can, but you have to have a low volume, so they can't, I mean, you can't put a high volume frack in Illinois. Um, they won't allow it. And I, I don't think Chicago is ever going to, you know, anything they're going to ban fracking altogether. You know, that California is, I think, banned it. Uh, yeah. Again, as, as it's been mentioned in Michigan. They mention it, but it hasn't been banned in any way, shape, and form. Um, yeah. But they they talk about banning it just because of you know the gigantic amount of fresh water and people freak out. Right. But you can't directionally drill uh, underneath any of the lakes. Mm-hmm. So there's a big consortium between Canada and all the the Great Lakes states, and they came together and said you because there's wells in like uh, some in Canada, and I think. I don't know. It might just be Canada, but uh, there's some wells that go underneath Lake Erie that they're producing mm-hmm. gas and stuff out of. So, yeah, that'd be pretty bad if you started draining the lake. <laughs> right. <laughs> or it kicked up into the lake too. You know, right. people freak out. Yeah, they're like, first, "Oh, you're first big kill. fish kill from methane. You're going to be in trouble." Well, you know, you, you, all the all the environmental pollution that comes into the Great Lakes is all from the drainage. So it's it's mostly mm-hmm. farming, agricultural and industrial. Right. And there's huge algal blooms that go throughout Lake Erie and kill fish, kill everything, and make the water toxic. People who live downriver in southern, southeastern Michigan and uh, northwestern Ohio can't drink their water for months out of the year sometimes because of algal mm-hmm. blooms. But Yeah, they, uh, when we were over... When I was over in the Marcellus, you know, West Virginia, and PA, and Ohio, they they all, you know, blame the oil and gas industry and fracking, uh, especially for polluting their water wells and, and making it so that they can light their water wells on fire. But but a lot of those, you know, a lot of the aquifers run through coal beds, and especially if they've mined the coal or they, you know, a mine is nearby or something, you know, that's an out for that's an easy out for methane is, is coming up through a water well. So uh, what they've, they've found is a lot of that's just due to the coal bed methane, or the mm. coal bed methane, the, the coal beds that they go through. Yeah. Uh, but they still blame us, so that's all right. <laughs> Whatever. Well. <laughs> well, Chris, I want to get going. I, uh, okay. I'm hungry. I want to go hit one of Talos's yeah. 
Great. Go hit the slopes, man. Go hit the slopes. Oh, tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to kill myself on a black diamond. Oh, God. <laughs> great. I'm going to pull Bono. I'm going to smoke something. And I, I tried that once. I uh, I went back to sledding or tubing, whatever they have. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I tried skiing once, and it was that was enough for me. Well, I want to thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Uh, this concludes another episode of the Geology Vlog Podcast. I want to thank all of you for listening. And until next time, tune in, turn on, and drop out, and we'll catch you on the flip side.